we are in a series about the book of Acts, and it's called Unstoppable, and I've tried to think of things, and I'll have other things as well. I showed this last week. I'll show it again. Uh, Something that's unstoppable, so powerful. And Jesus said that on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The church is unstoppable. There is no plan B. Plan A is you and me, part of the universal church. We know it's not a building. But the church began in Acts chapter 2, about 30 A.D., when the Holy Spirit took up residence in the hearts and lives of believers, and the church became this unstoppable force. And we're going to study the story of the church, which is part of your story, because you're here today, uh, here worshiping our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The bottom line of our talk is this. Jesus will return physically to this world during the great day of the Lord to establish his kingdom. In the meantime, believers are to walk worthy and battle faithfully as they impact this world for Jesus Christ. Hey, Jesus will return. He promised it. It will happen. Nothing will stop him. Nothing will slow him down. And yet in the meantime, God's given you and me a mission. We have a purpose, and I hope today you rejoice in that purpose. You know you're here for a reason. That is ultimately to give glory to Jesus Christ because he is the one that made us and created us and knows exactly who we are and yet loves us intimately. The key verse of our series is this, right at the beginning of the book of Acts, Acts 1.8. Jesus told the disciples this, you will receive power When the Holy Spirit has come upon you, I want to ask you today, the same Holy Spirit the disciples received back in 30 AD, is that the same Holy Spirit you have today? Of course it is. The same power they received is the power that we have within us. This amazing transition from the old covenant to what Jesus described when he did his last supper with his disciples, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. What did he mean by that? This amazing covenant of grace that we are not saved by our works. We're not saved by what we do. If you stood before God today and he asked you, why should I let you into heaven? My prayer would be that none of you would say, because I deserve it, God. I'm a good person. I haven't robbed a bank. I haven't murdered anybody. I deserve to come in. No, instead you would say, I place my faith and trust in the work of Jesus Christ on the cross for me. He died to pay the price for my sins, and I believe it. It's the core conviction of my life. And by God's grace, by your grace, God, I am saved. I'm forgiven. I've received this free gift of eternal life and forgiveness. I'm adopted into the family of God. And the Holy Spirit lives within you. You are the temple of God. So Jesus said, when the Holy Spirit comes, come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the end of the earth, the uttermost parts of the earth. We went over the structure of the book of Acts. Three key sections. First section begins in Jerusalem. Then it moves, like Acts 1.8 says, to Judea and Samaria, and then to the end of the earth, the uttermost parts of the earth as Paul begins his travels planting churches around the Mediterranean world. Uh, Chapters 1 through 7 is all about Jerusalem, 8 through 12, Judea, Samaria, 13 through 28, the uttermost parts of the earth. Central person, Peter, 
was there at the birth of the church and thousands come to faith in Christ. Then Philip in Samaria, yes, even Samaritans welcomed into the body of Christ, into the church. And then Paul doing his missionary travels. The people addressed in the beginning was Jews. God's sovereign choice. For whatever reason, he created and chose the nation of Israel through whom the Messiah would come. But that message would quickly move on to the Samaritans and then to the Gentiles. The progression of thought, the triumph of the church, even in the midst of persecution. Thousands coming to faith in Christ. A period of transition as it moves out of Jerusalem and it spreads throughout the world as Paul begins his missionary travels. The key sentence for the book of Acts, Acts describes the birth and growth of the New Testament church. And the story continues today. But if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to Acts chapter 1. We're going to go back to that passage that we began looking at last week. Jesus gave them their instructions. You're going to receive power. You're going to be my martyreos, my witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the uttermost parts. Verse 9. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. Can you imagine being there? You're with Jesus. He's talking to you, giving you these instructions. And all of a sudden, he starts to rise up and he disappears into the clouds. This is not a fairy tale. This is not a fanciful story. This is God in flesh doing exactly what he intended to do when he left the disciples. He's God. It always amazes me when people question the stories of the Bible. Yeah, I believe in God, Mel, but that whole story of Jonah and that great fish, I mean, that's ridiculous. Now, if you believe in a God, like Genesis 1-1 says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, for our God, who is awesome, to cause a fish to swallow Jonah and keep Jonah alive in the belly of that fish is no problem for our God. Our God is not a small God. Our God is an awesome God. He's awesome. And as Jesus ascends into heaven, look what happens. While the disciples were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes, obviously angels, and 11, verse 11, and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go. Uh, we, last week we began this passage, but I didn't get to this verse, and I don't want to skip over this verse lightly because this verse is very informative about the second coming of Christ. Not only about his departure, but about his second coming. It's key to understand. We're going to talk about that. And knowing that Jesus is going to come back, I think this is a, an interesting statement by the angels. You know, you can kind of picture it, right? They're looking up into heaven. Jesus has disappeared in the clouds. And Peter probably looks at his watch and says, man, he's been gone for 20 minutes. When is he coming back? What? It's been a long time. What? What's happening? And the angels say, hey, why are you gazing into heaven? Jesus told you what to do. You're to go to Jerusalem and wait for the coming of the Holy Spirit. But then they add this statement about the second coming of Christ. This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go 
into heaven. What that tells me is for the motivational aspect of all of us as believers, it's important for us to keep in mind Jesus is coming back. He's coming. We don't know when, but he's coming back. At my house, I have a little pond about 10 feet wide and, and two feet, uh, 10 feet long, about 2 feet wide. And I think I've shared with you in the past that we stocked that pond with about 35 goldfish. And every morning, my uh, eight, she was about 8 years old when we initially started doing this. My 8-year-old daughter, Capri, and I would walk out every morning and feed these 35 fish. And there was just kind of a thing we did every morning. And we began to kind of love these fish as they began to grow up and they became bigger and bigger and they were filling our pond and we'd feed them every morning. But then one day I was in the kitchen and I looked out the window where the pond was and the pond is right by the window so I can't see the pond. But what I did see was this, these two wings, white wings by the pond going like this. And I'm like, what in the world is at our pond? And I go outside, and this bird, just like this one, flies away from the pond. And I look in the pond, and most of the fish are still there, but I realized he got some of them. And if you know anything about these birds, God designed them perfectly to do what they do extremely well. They fish. And they're good at it. Not like me, I'm terrible at fishing. This bird is good at it. Once this bird has a sight in his mind, he never forgets it. So Capri and I and my wife and the whole family, we're kind of looking for this bird. We don't know when this bird is coming back, but we know he's coming back. There's a lot of fish. There's probably about 30. He probably got four or five of them that, that visit. There's about 30 left. So we're watching out for the bird, and I'm concerned about the bird. And we, we saw him a couple times flying around our yard. And, of course, there are times when we leave the house. But I decided that I would do something really ingenious. I found this little spray unit, a spray nozzle, that kind of like the ones that water your lawn. And I put a motion detector on it. And I, I, it was designed that once it senses motion, it would nail the bird with water and scare it away from the pond. The problem was this. The only thing it was hitting was my wife and my kids as they came near the pond. They would become soaked. And my wife said, you've got to take that thing away. It's constantly spraying me as I'm walking past the pond. So now my pond is defenseless. I don't want to put a netting up. And one by one, this bird picks away at my fish until there's only two left. Two. But they're pretty big by now. Two of them left. And Capri and I would go out every morning and feed the fish until one morning I'm upstairs and I hear Capri yell from the kitchen, Dad, the fish, the bird is back, the bird is back. And she runs out the door, our dog follows, I'm running down the stairs, and my daughter sees this bird with one of our two last fish in his beak flying away. And she screams so loud at the bird to stop, so loud, the bird got flustered, dropped the fish out of its mouth onto our trampoline. My wife tells me, get the bird on the, the fish on the trampoline. I climb on the trampoline. The fish is flopping around. She runs and gets a, a bowl with some pond water. I finally catch the fish flopping around. We put it in the bowl. It's a little bit injured. We're not sure it's going to make it. But we put it back in the pond, and it survived. It made it. Good job, Barbara. But we were constantly looking for the return of this bird, constantly on the alert. And I'm happy to report to you today, all the fish are gone. They're all gone. 
The one we saved, gone. We, you, this, this bird is so good at it, we couldn't stop this bird because it was always coming back. And we were always looking for it. That's kind of what it's like with the return of Christ. You're always looking for it. You're looking for signs all around you for the return of Christ. It's, it's like you want to find out in what way today is the world fulfilling some of the prophecies about the return of Christ. Always alert to it. That's the attitude of Scripture. Be alert to what's happening around you. Be alert to the signs of the times. We talked about the fact that the mission had gripped the minds and hearts of the early church, and it did. And they were anticipating the work of the Holy Spirit in their lives, filling of the Holy Spirit in their lives. Are you anticipating the same? But today I want to talk about this. The reality of seeing Jesus again was a core belief of early uh, believers. A core belief of early believers. Is it a conviction of yours? This is something that motivates you every day, that you will one day see Jesus. And that will happen either at my passing and yours, coming to the end of our lives, or Jesus returning in power. See, this call in Acts 1.11 really is a call to obedience. The angels are saying, why are you standing gazing up into heaven? Jesus told you what to do, and he's going to come back. It's a call to obedience rather than idleness. And I don't know if you're like me. I've, over the years, I've read stories of these fringe groups of Christians who believe Jesus is coming back on this certain day, and they're not doing anything for the Lord. They're just waiting for that day when he's going to come back. Even this group I read about that on a certain day went to the top of a mountain. They were all dressed in white, waiting for the coming of the Lord because their leader had predicted the Lord would come back on that day, and it didn't happen, and they all sadly walked back down the hill still dressed in their white clothes. Because the Bible tells us not to set dates, not to do that, but to be actively engaged in the work of the Lord, that the coming of the Lord, His second coming, should motivate us. See, the principle in Scripture is this, work while you wait. While you wait for the coming of the Lord, we're to be engaged in the work of the Lord. Second Thessalonians 3 talks about this. That's a book that talks about the second coming of Christ. But it says this, we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. You're busy at finding out about everybody else's business, but not doing the work of the Lord. We're to be engaged in the work of God, doing what he's called us to do. 2 Timothy 4, a powerful passage. Paul writes it to his spiritual son, Timothy, who's a pastor. He writes this, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing as, and his kingdom. He says basically to Timothy, Jesus is going to appear again. He's going to come back and set up his kingdom. What should be your response, Timothy? Hey, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. I want to ask you today, has that time come already? Absolutely it has. All around you is false teaching about Jesus and about how to be right with God. All around you. That's why it's so important for you as a believer to study the Word of God so when you encounter false teachings all around you, you know how to defend the Word of God and what it says. That you love the Word of God and you don't want anyone perverting and changing the message of the Word of God because it's that important to preach in season when it's easy. You know, when you're with other believers and you're talking about the Word of God, then that's in season. That's easy. 
but even to preach it when it's out of season, when it's not popular, when people will attack you and put you down for believing in it. Here's a second reminder I see from the book of Acts in Acts 1.11 as the angels give the disciples this encouragement. The reminder of Jesus' return was and is, by the way, a source of motivation for believers. I was sharing with the elders this past Tuesday. We had an elder meeting, and I was saying, you know what, I was just driving. We are talking about our lives and, and how uh, every one of us, uh, we're getting closer to the end of our lives. And I said, yeah, I was driving in the car, and there's a beautiful sky, and I just thought, what is that first second going to be like when I pass away and I step into eternity, into a place the Bible describes as a place beyond anything we can imagine or think. What will that be like? It will be awesome. And anything I can think of that's awesome doesn't even come close because heaven is beyond what I can imagine or think. My prayer would be for all of us that, that we would have this motivation that one day we will see the Lord face to face. One day He will return. It may not be in our lifetime, but it could be. And it should be a motivation to us. You probably heard the word Maranatha uh, spoken quite a bit. There's a group out there called the Maranatha Singers. There's Maranatha Music. Where did that word come from? What does it mean? It occurs one time in the New Testament. It occurs in 1 Corinthians 16, 22. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord come. Those three words, our Lord come, is a translation of one Aramaic word that's inserted into the Greek text here. It's the word Maranatha. It's an Aramaic phrase. It occurs once in the New Testament. Our Lord come. This was an important belief of early Christians. That Jesus is returning and Jesus come quickly. That's what's expressed in the last book, the next to last verse of the Bible, Revelation 22, 20. It says this, He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. And John writes, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Come. The change will be awesome as we step into the place that God has prepared for us. But from this passage, Acts 1.11, I want to reiterate some really important truths. Truth number one from this passage, you will see Jesus in the future, at his return or at your death. It's going to happen. It's good to remind ourselves of that, to keep ourselves accountable to the fact that our lives will not always continue the way they are, day by day, morning, evening, sometime in the future, things will change. A change is definitely coming. We don't know exactly when, but it's coming. You will see Jesus face to face, either at his return or at your death. And I want to remind you that all the prophecies of Christ about his second coming, they will come to pass. Just like all the prophecies about his first coming, you know the biblical timeline. In the beginning, uh, God said, the seed of the woman will one day crush the head of the serpent. The answer to sin was already in place. And prophecies by Abraham and uh, during the time of David, during the time of the prophets, 800 to 400 B.C., all pointing to the coming of the Messiah, were fulfilled when that little baby was born in Bethlehem. And he laid down his life for us right around 30 A.D. when he was crucified. And the beginning of the church age happened. That's what we're in now. 
the church age, this period of amazing grace. We don't have to do all the sacrifices of the Old Testament. People have said to me, hey, Mel, there's some things in the Old Testament that the Bible says you should do that you're not doing. Yes, because that was the Old Covenant. We're under the new one. Jesus fulfilled all the requirements of the Old Covenant. Now we're under the new. The sacrifices, we don't do them anymore. Why? Because Jesus was the ultimate fulfillment of every sacrifice, every one. The new covenant, it's all about grace and being adopted into the family of God and receiving the righteousness of Christ and entering into his presence day after day. God taking up residence in your life and mine. It's an amazing story. And it's all true. You are now the temple of God. He lives within you. But there is a change coming again. When Jesus steps into this planet again physically, his second coming. And you've probably heard talk about the rapture. I'll get back to that in a second. And then following that, the 1,000 year reign of Christ on this earth. And, and for many years, people would mock the prophecies of the second coming of Christ. The Bible talked about the Antichrist making a covenant with the nation of Israel. And I think I shared this with you uh, in one of our sermons in the series Questions by Jesus. But people mocked the Bible because it talked about the nation of Israel. For many, many years, they would mock the Bible because there was no nation of Israel. As you know, for hundreds of years, the nation of Israel did not exist. And not once in all of human history did a nation from antiquity that ceased to exist come back to life again. You hear nothing about the nation of the Canaanites. Nothing. You don't hear about the nation of the Philistines. Nothing. But God did a miracle in 1948 when the UN, after World War II and the Holocaust, decided to give Jews a portion of the land in the Middle East, something the world thought would never, ever happen, but it did. And the day that Israel declared itself a nation, they were attacked and they survived. Later in 1967, they were attacked again during the Six-Day War, and miraculously, they survived and there's a nation that exists called Israel again. And when that happened, all of a sudden, people began to open the word of God a little more enthusiastically and said, wait, wait a minute, what did the Bible say about the nation of Israel and a, the, the Antichrist and a covenant made with the nation of Israel? What does the Bible say about it? Because I want to tell you, my friends, what God says will happen will happen. When Jesus says he will return, he will return exactly as it's stated in the word of God. The Bible talks about there being a temple I think I shared with you in the past. It's good to hear it again. There is an amazing momentum building in the nation of Israel to rebuild the temple. Every one of the leaders of Israel who are running for office in their past election had in their platform as a plank the rebuilding of the temple. That all of them were for the rebuilding of the Jewish temple. And that when I was there, our archaeologist tour guide took us to the Temple Mount. You see the Dome of the Rock on the top. He walked past there, took us to that side of the Dome of the Rock, and said, this is where the Jewish temple originally stood. The Muslims built the Dome of the Rock on the wrong place, thinking they were building it on the site of the Jewish temple, but they built it on the wrong place. So the Jewish temple could be rebuilt without even touching the Dome of the Rock. I don't know if you saw this news story just a few days ago. Again, a reminder to me, God, this is all about you setting up the world for what you said would happen. I saw this article that 
Iran joins Russia and China in joint naval exercises beginning Friday. That was an article from December 27th, so right around New Year's. There were joint naval exercises with Russia, China, and Iran. Of all the countries in the world, why would Russia and China be concerned about having naval exercises with Iran, a country that's dedicated to the destruction of Jerusalem and America, by the way? All pointing back to what the Bible says is going to happen. The Bible talks about multiple nations coming against Israel to attack Israel. It's all coming together exactly as the Bible states. There's a mention in Revelation of Gog and Magog. Some scholars believe Magog represents countries to the north that will come down like Russia and be involved in a final battle in the land of Israel. It's all coming together exactly as God stated. My hope and prayer would be that all of you would see this as a major encouragement to you to love the Word of God, to believe it and receive it for what it is, the Word of God, this amazing gift that God has given to us. And by the way, from Acts chapter 1, not only will Jesus come again, but here's another important part, point. It will be the same Jesus. There's not another prophet coming. Acts 1.11 makes that clear. This same Jesus will return. I saw a trailer on TV. I didn't watch the show. Maybe some of you have watched it. It's called The Messiah. Anybody see that? Or Yeah, I, I, on the trailer, I kind of got an idea about what the show is about. Like this young man that has some powers, perhaps, and the world is wondering, is this the return of the Messiah or the coming of the Messiah? Well, I can tell you emphatically, the Bible would say absolutely not. If you have your Bibles, by the way, turn to Matthew 24. Exactly. <clears throat> Matthew 24. If you're going to do a study on prophecy, begin in Matthew 24. Let the timeline of Matthew 24, which Jesus gives us, by the way, be the foundation of fitting all the other passages, First and Second Thessalonians, the passages in Revelation, all should fit in the timeline of Matthew 24. This is what Jesus says about his coming. Verse 23. Then if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ. The word Christ is simply the Greek word for the word Messiah. Look, here's the Messiah over here. Or there he is. Do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I've told you beforehand. So if they say to you, look, he's in the wilderness, don't go out. If they say, look, he's in the inner rooms, don't believe it. See, the principle is this. You're not going to have to look for the Messiah when he comes. You don't have to search for him. He will find you. Next verse. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Here in California, we don't have amazing lightning storms. They happen once in a while. In the Midwest, we had amazing lightning storms. Lightning storms that covered the whole sky. Multiple lightning strikes all at once covering the whole sky. Everyone knew there was a lightning storm going on. Everyone saw it. Nobody missed it. That's what Jesus is saying. When I come back, no one will miss it. You won't have to search for the Messiah if he's in some inner room. In fact, he's not going to touch the earth. But everyone will know it. 
back in power and glory. And it will be a physical return. Again, Acts chapter 1, right? This same Jesus that you saw go up, you'll see him come back. Was the departure a physical one? Yes, it was. Will the return be a physical one? Yes, it will be. Why do I say that? Because there are people out there who want to say Jesus came back spiritually. In fact, the Jehovah Witnesses, just one example, I've studied their theology quite a bit over the years. They made this statement that Jesus would return in October 1914. That they, they prophesied that Jesus would return in 1914, they'll witness the full end of Babylon, which is the world system, as a great millstone cast into the sea, utterly destroyed by the return of Jesus. Well, that didn't happen in 1914. So they prophesied again that it would happen in 1917. It didn't happen in 1917. Then they came back and said, well, you know what? Actually, we were right in the beginning. Jesus did come back in 1914, but it wasn't a physical return. It was a spiritual return. This is what they wrote in one of their publications. Jesus began his invisible rule over the earth in 1914. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says it will be a physical return, not a spiritual one. And here's another important point from this passage. It will be in the clouds. You saw him go away into the clouds. He will return into the clouds, the angels are saying. Let me share with you some of the verses that are consistent in Scripture about this. Matthew 24, then will appear, this is Jesus talking, in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. This is repeated again in Mark 14, 62. Jesus said, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. In 1 Thessalonians 4, it says this, Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. It's from this verse, by the way, that we get the word rapture from. The Greek word caught up was translated into the Latin translation of the Bible as rapturus. And it's that word from which we get the word rapture from. So don't let people throw you and say, hey, the word rapture isn't even in the Bible. Well, that, that, that means nothing. That word rapture is expressing what this verse clearly teaches. We will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. You might say, well, no, that sounds so mystical. It sounds so fanciful. It sounds so magical. How could that ever happen? It sounds like a kind of a fairy tale. No, it's not. Remember, our God is an awesome God. God knows exactly where your heart's at. He knows where your heart's at. It's no problem for him to gather people that believe in him to meet him in the clouds. He's an awesome God. He's not a little God. And he's going to do exactly what he says he will do. Revelation 1.7 says this, Behold, Jesus is coming with the clouds. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. He's coming in the clouds. <clears throat> it's going to happen. And lastly, I just want to remind you of this. Don't set dates. Don't get into setting return dates of Jesus. <clears throat> Don't believe them. The Bible tells us not to do that. We're not to set dates. In fact, if you hear of someone setting a date, you can almost be guaranteed that won't be the date of his return, right? Matthew 24 says this, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. 
For in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. I remember years ago hearing a pastor that preached on this verse. And he was talking about how bad it was in Noah's day. It was so bad. They were eating and drinking. But that's not what he's saying here. What this verse is saying is they were doing all the normal things you do when you think life is going to go on without any change at all. They were eating and drinking. They were marrying and giving in marriage. All the things you do normally until the day Noah entered the ark and destruction came. That's what this world is going to be like. The Bible says it will come like a thief in the night. But it also says this, you are not like those in darkness so that this day will overtake you like a thief in the night. You'll see the signs. You'll know the time is getting near because Jesus will return. But even with the admonition of Scripture not to set dates, people still do it. I still remember one guy used to hear on Christian radio out on the East Coast, Harold Camping a couple years ago, uh, made a prediction that Jesus would come back on May 21st. Well, May 21st came and left. And then this article came out. Harold Camping says May 21st rapture prediction was incorrect and sinful. Amen. Violated what the Word of God says. Don't set dates, but be alert to the signs of the times. Jesus tells us not to set dates. Only the Father knows. And we will one day, those who are left, will be caught up together with the Lord to meet him in the air. Just noticed a low battery warning. I can get through this before it ends. These are, you know, uh, the rapture, by the way, four basic views. We talked about this, I think, maybe about six months ago or a year, and I don't want to spend a lot of time on it. But four basic views. You might hold one of these views. If you don't, I would encourage you to study Scripture to find what your view is. I hold one of these views. There are other people in this church who hold a different view than I do. That's okay. Just study the Word of God. Get to know the Word of God and what it says because the time is coming when things will definitely change. 2 Timothy 2 says this, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not to be, need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. Know what the word of God says. Build a position on what you think is going to happen on the end times. It's not a core doctrine of the faith, but it's something we should definitely be aware of and be a source of motivation for us as believers. So as we close, I want to give you five quick things. Number one, to be ready for Jesus' return. Number one is this to receive him as your Lord and Savior, to make sure that you've received salvation by faith, that you've made a decision to put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. So if you stood before God today and he asked you, why should I let you into heaven? Confidently you would say, because I believe Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins. My sins are forgiven. I've been adopted into the family of God. Make sure you've made that decision. You've settled your eternity. Here's the second thing evangelize people around you. Share what you know of Jesus with others. They need to hear it. It's that important. Don't keep it to yourself. That's one of the most selfish acts of all time, to keep the good news of Jesus to yourself. Lastly, actively serving Christ, to be engaged in the work of the Lord, to deepen your walk with Jesus, to, to make sure that you're growing in your faith and becoming more like Christ, like the video said right before I got up this morning. And then lastly, yielding to the Lord daily, allowing the Holy Spirit who lives 
inside of you to fill you up. Because the reality is 